Oh, it's time for Plan B with the um, blowfish Rebecca Davis. <laughs> that's me. It's my name on the streets. <laughs> Is that your name on the streets? Mm-hmm. That's, that's your, um, your citizen band radio handle, <laughs> Blowfish. Right. Let's talk about parliamentary privilege. Well, it's got to end, John. Enough is enough. <laughs> enough is enough. By parliamentary privilege, I mean, of course, the rule, the law, as we can probably call it that, that prevents MPs for being sued for defamation or having any criminal action taken against them whatsoever as a result of things they say in the National Assembly in the course of a parliamentary sitting. Now, there are good reasons for this rule, I think we can agree. For instance, Helen Sussman, the anti-apartheid, well, the person who fought apartheid from the inside, put it that way, she she used parliamentary privilege as a way to bring to the media's attention repressive government activities that they could not report on. So that was a way in which the safety offered by that space was a way to expose oppression. That's the, the, the holy grail of parliamentary privilege. And it's been used like that all over the world. But what we're seeing, John, is the situation here, I mean, I have to say, largely due to the introduction of the EFF into Parliament, where Parliament's also becoming a space where MPs can simply throw around accusations and not be held accountable for them. And this week has been a real, you know, kind of crucible of that. We had allegations now well rehearsed of spousal abuse filing and flying in all directions, and also the EFF claiming that the NC or members of the NC were apartheid spies. The point is that It's also not the case that we are still living in a society where this information would be heard only by a few people. This is being live broadcast, being live tweeted, etc. Conceivably, the whole country is sitting and listening to what amounts to probably slander. What should we do about it? Is it right that you can literally say whatever? And sure, you might be brought to um, some kind of disciplinary action brought against you within the parliamentary system, but outside it. You get away scot-free. Yeah, and, and the sanctions which are available at the moment under the parliamentary system are negligible, right. essentially negligible. Right. Um, Boy Mama Bolo has apparently made his accusations about Julius Malema outside of parliament as That's well, right. and so now there are lawsuits by both Julius Malema and his spouse. But Julius Malema's accusation against Sul Ramaphosa was said only in parliament. And... You know, Julius Malema says to us that he's got evidence. What makes his statement different from Boy Mama Bola's is that he, Julius Malema, has evidence. And his evidence seems to be that Julius, uh, that Jacob Zuma told him. Told him. <laughs> that's, um, not, that's not evidence. That's not going to stand. So, I mean, I, I tried to do, I didn't have much time today, but I tried to do a little bit of research to see if I could find a parliamentary system which preserves the best parts mm-hmm. of parliamentary privilege and gets rid of the worst parts, and I couldn't. No, it seems all over the world parliamentary privilege is controversial for precisely this thing, that it is open to abuse. And it's been in the in consideration in the UK in recent years a lot because MPs have used it as a way to get around court rulings and super injunctions. So, for instance, in 2011, the footballer Ryan Giggs was embroiled in an adultery scandal and he took out a super injunction to prevent the media reporting on him. A Lib Dem MP named him in the House of Lords. And... People generally were quite proving of that because everyone hates celebrities getting away with, with murder. But much more recently, Lord Peter Hayne, who has a South, many South African connections, he named the um, top shop owner, Philip Green, as somebody else in a scandal. And that was considered more tenuous because, again, he was overruling, effectively. The judgment handed down a day before by three judges, you know, 
preventing the naming of P- Philip Green. So there too, there's been a lot of discussion about whether, in fact, parliamentary privilege needs to have caps on it while still maintaining the ability for robust debate for MPs not to be charged for, you know, criticizing those in power, etc. But it seems like there has to be some kind of a balance found. What that balance might be, I don't know. Do you have any ideas? No, not no. one. No. It's unusual. God knows. Somebody has suggested <laughs> that they're currently listening to Hootie and the Blowfish. <laughs> <laughs> Would you pay 30,000 rand for a dinner in which you're told how racist you are, uh, which is happening in the U.S.? I wouldn't be invited to that dinner because I'm not a liberal white woman. Correct. And you would be thought of as unreconstructable. Yep. But in the USA, this is now a thing. It's called race to dinner in which eight, uh, groups of up to eight white women can host a dinner party, which is then the special guests are two moderators of color who come to dinner and then challenge you on your racism as a liberal white woman. Um, it can apparently be fairly awkward, particularly initially. Hands but, were laid, but the, but said the, the story. That's yeah. right. But the quote which really gets me is that the moderators consider it a particularly effective way to get white women to think about their racism because, quote, if you did this in a conference room, you'd, they'd leave. But wealthy white women have been taught never to leave the, dine, the dinner table. In other words, there's this bizarre kind of educate code that even if somebody is literally haranguing you about what a racist you are, you're just going to sit quietly and munch your More order. carbonara, yes. <laughs> yes that's right. I, I, I read it again and again, Rebecca, trying to work out what I felt about it. I, <sighs> It, it's not that I don't think liberal white people are not subconsciously and perhaps even sometimes consciously racist. I, mm. I, I accept that all of us, no matter what our commitment to non-racialism might be, those of us who've been imbued with white privilege from day one must harbor unconscious attitudes, which must at times come out in, in discourse with other white people or, or with um, black people. But there was just something so kind of creepy about this dinner idea. What did you think of it? I thought it would never fly in South Africa. And I was interested by that because a friend in the US was recently asking me for my opinions on the difference in race relations between America and South Africa. And I said, you know, the one thing we really do have going is I feel we are able to have much more honest and we are used to having much more honest conversations about race. And that's why I just think something like this, I mean, I think white people would be like, are you mad? I hear that in Parliament every day or Mm -hmm. for free or whatever. There's not a sense that we need these reserved spaces to talk about racism and certainly not to pay for the privilege. I mean, I'm all for people confronting their, their racism, but if there are entrepreneurs of color out there looking to make a go of this in South Africa, I would be astonished if you got it off the ground. Something I'm definitely not going to suffer from, and I think you're also unlikely ever to be plagued by fashion imposter syndrome. I learn something new from you every week. This is via a study from Harvard, actually, that there is a new condition in town, and it is called fashion imposter syndrome. And this refers to the condition that could assail you if you buy really, really expensive clothes and then wearing them actually makes you feel worse about yourself because you put on this, I don't know, Armani kimono, John, as you want to on the weekend, <laughs> slip into your Armani yes. my Instagram, <laughs> My Instagram account is supposed to be private. <laughs> and then you're like, wait a second. I'm John Matham. This isn't, I'm not good enough to wear this Armani kimono. I should be wearing rags. I should be wearing sacks. You know, and as a result, it can actually make you quite depressed. The only way in which you're safe from this, apparently, is if you, if you have a humongous sense of entitlement. So you slip on your Armani kimono and you say, finally, 
I'm wearing the gossamer-like fabrics to which I have aspired my whole life and which I deserve. But be careful what you be careful what you um, what you wish for. In other words. Rebecca sends me an email every Thursday morning and uh, says these are the topics I'd like to discuss and almost always I say, for sure, let's go ahead. Sometimes I go, well, mm, can we instead of that do this? Mm. And um, number four, I'm putting this last, she wrote, because even given the rules of Plan B privilege, this may be too crude to discuss. And yet we must, surely. Mm. A new survey suggests that one in 30 people poo in the shower. You read correctly, not pee, but poo. Hmm. Surely not. I don't know what to tell you, John. This is from a reputable survey conducted by a bathroom manufacturer <laughs> in the UK who surveyed a 1,000 people and found that of those, 1 in 30 people confessed that they regularly or semi- regularly. regularly or semi-regularly or at some point have defecated in the shower. Now, this seems so bizarre that various people took to Twitter and held their own polls, saying, have you ever taken a poo in the shower? And indeed, there again, there were a certain small proportion of people who said, why, yes, I have. Yes, and I d- am a shower d- d- pooer. D- d- <laughs> yes, I am a shower pooer. Uh, not a T-shirt that I'm ever going to wear. <laughs> but did any of these people say why? No. I, mean, I can understand that you're going through a period of diarrhea and you get into the shower believing that you've only just got off so you should be safe for the three minutes that you expect your shower to take and then you are caught unawares. Caught unawares. Yes, once off. But you seem to suggest that some people do it, if not as a matter of course, but then with some regularity. Why? <laughs> I don't it is because when you start, this is why I didn't actually want to bring this up. Because when you start you thinking wrote it. about, when you, start you said thinking, we must. When you start thinking about the mechanics of how one would then dispense with the feces one has deposited at the bottom of the shower, your shower is not a hole in the ground normally. It it, it is, is covered by a lattice-like drain, which I think does not perhaps lend itself very well to flushing down a poo. So the question is. What becomes of the boot, and do you have to assist it to go down <laughs> the shower drain? John, I'm, I'm glad so you're, sorry I'm for glad you're embarrassed. Tone. I'm glad you're embarrassed. <laughs> Nothing wrong with that if the shower head is above a long drop. Well, there are not too many South African bathrooms that are designed in that way, Roger. I would love to know if any of your readers would be... Listeners, ass- they're called listeners. Listeners, I'm so sorry. That's all right. Would be brave enough to phone and say, you know what, John, I do it. I like to drop one in the shower. I'm not ashamed. It's the cleanest way to use the toilet. Come on, someone out there. <laughs> I, uh, the only thing I've got so far is no way. Ew. <laughs> I think that sums it up. Yeah, okay. Thank you, Rebecca. Thank well, you, John. <clears throat>